BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Otis Tavon to Ben Jarofsky show as I speak Thursday, July 15th, 2021. I just got the New York Times right in front of me. I'm going to read you the headline. Democrats set budget outline at $3.5 trillion, vowed to expand social and climate agenda. President Biden and congressional Democrats vowed on Wednesday to push through $3.5 trillion budget blueprint to vastly expand social and environmental programs. They're putting money in your pockets, people, with tax credits, and yet it's a struggle. It's such a struggle for the Democrats to hold on to the House, hold on to the Senate because of all the shenanigans the Republicans are up to in terms of voting rights. The Republican strategy, everybody who listens to the show knows, is that if they can keep black people from voting, they will be victorious in 2022. That's what it's all about. We all know it. We may not want to admit it. So all these great things that Democrats want to do won't happen if the Republicans get away with it. All right, I'm going to get off my uh, soapbox and uh, ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself. And then I'm going to ask my distinguished guest what she thinks about what I just said. So distinguished guest, it's been too long. Introduce yourself. Uh, Stacey Davis-Gates, friend of the Ben J. Show. Big time friend of the Ben J. Show. Let me just, we've been saying this on the regular show all the time, Chicago Teachers Union. I finally talked them into kicking a little scratch of the Ben Jarofsky Show, and they're one of our sponsors, one of the unions that sponsors us. And uh, people go, Ben. It's about time. We were like freeloading, right? <laughs> Take like <laughs> after that sentence. <laughs> Everybody goes, Ben, you're going to be so kind to the Chicago Teachers Union now that they're a sponsor. I go, when was I ever not kind to the Chicago Teachers Union? Half of those youngsters running that union grew up reading my columns. So uh, anyway, that's enough of that. But uh, thank you very much, Stacey Davis-Gates. And uh, we will treat you the same exact way we used to treat you uh, before you were sponsoring uh, Union for the Chicago for the Ben Jarofsky Show. So, uh, well, you know, they tell me that labor is part owner of the Sun Times, but those editorials becoming fast and furious at it. So, you know, I I don't think sponsorship matters in Chicago, does it? Well, I got to tell you <laughs> this. I'm going to say this. I've been 
really disappointed by my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times. Labor did kick in a lot of money for the Sun-Times. Sun-Times used to uh, be Were you trying to put a monkey wrench in um, what they do? Well, I, I have... The- I, I do not understand their attitude. Uh, maybe we could talk about that. That wasn't on my list of things to talk about. Why the hostility that the Chicago Sun-Times has to the Chicago teachers? I understand the Tribune, okay? Uh, Stacy? I understand that the, the Tribune has a hostility, a long-term hostility to unions in general. It's, it's existed as long as I can remember. The Sun-Times is a relatively new thing. Their editorial in 2019 said, shut up and go back to work. Take the money. No, shut up and take the deal. Take shut the up deal. and take the deal. Right. I think yeah. it was what it was. You're right. You're and right. And then, you know, they, they, I don't know. And then they were real pissy about like having democracy for schools. It's, it's been something to hear people talk about that the Sun-Times is a working class newspaper and then to be a part of the working class and advocate for the working class as a member of the teachers union and, and, and get different energy, notwithstanding. Look, I think that the education reporting has been solid. I think it's been as balanced as you can get, to be perfectly honest with you, no shade to the beat. Um, but the editorial board has been particularly sharp. Um, you know, we've talked to them a couple of times and I'm not saying that I even have the expectation and sponsorship doesn't matter. I think that's the example that I was trying to, you know, put forth, you know, the Tribune, one of the editors, one of the, you know, people from the editorial board uh, famously said that, you know, the Chicago public schools needed a hurricane Katrina. So you you can't get any worse than that. Uh, no, so here can't. we are. Yeah, here we are. And I, and I, and I always make the distinction. So I'll do it again between reporters who are, who, cover the news and between the editorial writers who write these editorials, big distinction. I love my beloved bright one home delivered every day. And uh, yeah, I thank SEIU and Bob Ryder for coming to the aid of the sun times when it was in dire need. And I'll just say this before we move on reporters everywhere are organizing into unions and the future of journalism is so precarious. Stacey Davis Gates that if you're not in a union and you're a working journalist in this country, you're in jeopardy. Because your paper, as we saw with the Tribune, bought up by Alda and a hedge fund, and they're just like forcing people to leave so they can squeeze more profits by kicking money that would ordinarily go to salaries of reporters and just keeping it for themselves. If they didn't have a union to protect them, they could all be fired. And so I think more and more journalists are realizing that. And, you know, will that impact their coverage? They're always concerned about being looking like they're too favorable, uh, favoring unions. But I never see that same caution when it comes to capitalism in general, if I may throw that out there. What's your response and your thoughts on what I just had to say? Well, you know, the whole situation at the Tribune just reminds me of the 95, 96 era, you know, of the teachers union, where as a precursor to the privatization takeover, um, the mayor of Chicago went to Springfield and received total control. And then the very next year, um, the moneyed interest in Chicago, along with the mayor of Chicago and other, you know, elite figures in this space, went to Springfield and got the uh, charter school act passed, right? Where they said one thing, but what really happened is that less money was going into the classroom and more money was going into contracts for consultants and 
um, you know, administrative pay and so forth. So it's a very similar model, if you will. Um, starve the actual work and the workers while enriching um, those who administrate um, the think, right? And in this case, it's the newspaper. In our case, you know, it was the actual classroom. So this idea that workers have to have a voice, um, I understand that on a very intimate level. And I would even say that I think that the pandemic has sped it up. And as a friendly critique to my union siblings and especially union leadership, we got to catch up. We really do. Because um, what we know about the workplace, especially essential workers, is that it has to be safe. Is that you need a voice in safety and that the boss will try to push you into a corner and use all types of tactics to get you to do something that is unsafe. What workers found out in the last um, almost year and a half is that if you don't have an organized voice or just your own like clear voice, that you're going to get rolled and you might actually die. You, you might actually die. So it is, it is incumbent um, upon the worker um, and even more so for labor in this moment to be bold, bolder, and to also seek spaces that are unorganized and bring them in. And not to tell those people what to do either. There's some very interesting stuff, I think, going on with worker centers right now. And I think we should learn something from the work that a lot of the worker centers are doing. They're working with um, the undocumented population. They're working with, um, you know, black workers who are in low wage positions. So, you know, SEAU Healthcare, they went on strike a couple of times during the pandemic. Their workers were in the nursing homes. They had to in order to protect the community of people, not just the worker, but the community of people, the actual patient in the nursing home from COVID-19. So, Labor has it been absolutely critical in this moment. And what we should seek is to continue to be bold and to create more space for ourselves. All right. Uh, I had a whole list of things I want to talk about, but what you just said triggered something in mind. So we're just going to uh, improv here and wing it. Uh, you were talking about how critical uh, labor was. Uh, as uh, during the pandemic, I absolutely agree with you. And we've emerged from the pandemic. I'm a still a little scared as an older guy. <laughs> I mean, I got the shots. I wear my mask. I am going to the White Sox game tomorrow. You know, I do go to movies and stuff, but I always wear my mask. Okay. And I got the shots, Stacy. So I'm really scared about the, a second uh, wave uh, heart hitting Chicago hard. I see it's you already a fourth wave. A fourth wave. You're right. It would be <laughs> uh, the first wave after uh, in widespread immunization. So I struggle with this. Get your thoughts on this. Should employers require workers to get immunized before they come back to work? Your thoughts. You know, this is a this is the central question, right? I would say this, that we saw, we were classified as essential workers, right? The Trump administration classified educators as essential workers. 
and thereby saying that you get to go to work, just like um, workers in our grocery stores, in our hospitals, our nursing homes, et cetera. Um, you do better with the vaccine than not. That's what we, that's not just what the science told us prior to, that's what the science is telling us in this moment as we've already had, you know, like we're seeing the impact of it. I have one. I believe that it is, you know, a part of the layering that you have to do. What I will say is that one of the things that labor has to be responsible for, especially unions in this moment, is not simply being okay with the requirement of the vaccine, but how this plays out in impact, right? So is it that if you get the vaccine, you're okay? Well, we know it's not just the vaccine. And so I think a lot of the reticence that you hear is that people think just the vaccine. I just heard you tell me I have the vaccine. I wear my mask. I wash my hands. I don't go into crowded spaces. That's what you just said to me. It's not one thing. And so what, what I think is important is not just the requirement of the vaccine. It is also all of the other things, the ventilation, right? We know ventilation is key because this is airborne. Um, we know that masking, you know, is also a layer. We also know that, you know, cleanliness continues to be something that is necessary in this moment. Um, social distancing, contact tracing. And so it's not the one thing. What I would say is that employers have to be clear about providing the layers, not just mandating the vaccine, but requiring the layers and being accountable for providing that as the employer. So I believe that we have to have a layered mitigation strategy that includes vaccines, if that makes any sense. Uh, so is there any effort uh, by the Board of Education in the city of Chicago to work with the union to uh, create uh, that strategy that you just laid out? Are, are, is it happening right now or is it more of the same where uh, there is very little dialogue? Well, it's so... <laughs> we 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 have dialogue. The question is never if we're talking, right? We're always talking to these people. The question is if the mayor and her team at CPS value the process of coming to a collective agreement. And what I can say today is no, they don't they don't put any value on that. They're okay with telling us their perception. Um, what they intend to do, how they see it, whatever it is. And they are reticent, resistant, um, almost opposed to the process of coming to a collective agreement. And that's what makes this difficult um, because collective work is the only way we get this done. We The, the district intends to bring 100% of the student body back into the building. We know that only 25% of our students came back. Families were like, no. And even more so, it was the students in the communities that are the majority of our students. How do we do it 
in August, because we're coming back in August. I'm more pessimistic today than I was yesterday. Um, just recently, I've seen some of the breakdown of their data with respect to what families um, answered the surveys and what they said. Um, and typically what we you know, strive to do when you're setting policy is take the data, review it, get a good analysis, and then start creating policy based on that data. What we see in the data, though, is that there are still open questions and there's a huge gap with respect to who is answering and whose voice is um, prioritized in that. And if we look at the map of Chicago, it's the same map, right? The people who've suffered the most from COVID, the people who have had you know, less access than not to the vaccine are the same folks who haven't necessarily um, answered the survey. So any policy that comes from CPS or even from our table is going to be disadvantaged because we haven't had the one-to-one -one that we need in order to make good policy. That is always the central flaw in how policies are created at the Chicago Public Schools is that the people who are most impacted by the policy are rarely at the table informing the policy. So that's, and that persists. This time though, it's going to be detrimental. So I'll just give you an example of something that was really triggering today is that the Chicago Public Schools was providing an analysis or excuse me, an explanation of how they're doing home visits to our students who don't have permanent housing. And what they said out loud is that they're going door to door. I'm going to stop right there just for a second and let that like sink in. They're going door to door and speaking to families that are homeless. So I think the most obvious question is, how do you have a door and you're homeless? And now I'm not saying that they're not doubled up somewhere, right? Because we know that sometimes folks are doubled up. That's, that's just a part of this. And if that's the, the, like the, the, the priority of the strategy, then you ain't getting those people back, right? And then here's the other thing. They're knocking doors with people that aren't connected through the continuum of service, right? We know through research that home visit programs have to be grounded with teachers and teachers' assistants that they're going to see and interact with on a daily basis, that there has to be this concept of teaming with it. Their home visit program is absent of the teaming. So, you know, we have um, safe passage workers and um, the security from the, the buildings during home visits. Now, I'm not mad at that necessarily because we have those people are a part of the school community, right? And sometimes they have relationships that the classroom teacher can't um, create or have, have yet to create. And there's still no connectedness to the classroom and the classroom teacher or um, the teacher's assistant there. 
I would even say that the school clerk is central to this because if you want to know anything about anyone who's in that school community, the school clerk is 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 the chief of that. To be perfectly honest with you, we also have uh, homeless student coordinators. They're called STLS coordinators. Um, they're liaisons. They're not anywhere near this program. So right now I'm discouraged. I'll, I'll say that. You know, we've been, I was counting up, we've been bargaining <laughs> with the mayor and the Chicago public schools since 2018. Like literally in a bargaining session with these people since 2018, and this is 2021. So it's been like almost three years of nonstop bargaining and the same types of tone deafness can permeates this situation. It's not just frustrating, it's malpractice at this point. If, if the research says X, if the data says X, if the actual practitioners say X, and you're still saying Y, then you are intentionally on sabotage. I, I can't like make any other case for it, right? And it ain't just ideology. It's, it's just malpractice at this point. Like good intention is one thing, but the actual application of it, the actual work on it has been something completely different. And you got to wonder what the district will look like after the $2 billion that they received from the federal government is spent. Like you, you got to like a, a, over a $9 billion budget, over $9 billion. And I can't see how it's going to make the type of impact it should make. And it, the impact should be seismic. It can't just be a dent. You know, we're well past the need for a dent. We were in trouble prior to the pandemic. And now all of those troubles have been exacerbated by the pandemic. It's, 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 it's a thing. So when you say that the uh, union is bargaining with uh, the central office, with CPS, with the Board of Education, with their uh, representatives, what have you, uh, which is all under, by the way, we are a mayoral appointed system. So this is you're essentially bargaining with a, uh, agents or representatives of Mayor Lori Lightfoot at this point. Uh, right. I, right. So what are you bargaining over? I mean, the, you have a contract. So when you sit down with these negotiators, with these representatives of Lori Lightfoot, and her school uh, appointees, what's the topic on the table? Um, so today it was about home visits and how do you reach um, students who are in temporary living situations and their home visit program for the population of students is not that different than the home visit program that they have for students that actually have an address, a permanent address, I might add. Um, so it was hard to follow that. I think we also talked, I don't know what else we talked about because I was just so completely disappointed with the that part of it until, you know, I'm glad I was on a team because I was just completely taken aback by that. We're passing proposals across the table. So the CDC basically came out with, you know, guidance that I think is just absolutely ridiculous. Like if you have a shot, you don't have to wear it. But the only people who can get a shot are 12 and up. Right. And, you know, we're K-8 predominantly here in Chicago. So you have a seven year old in the same building as a 12 year old or even a 13 year old or a 14 year old. 
So how do you do that? Like, so functionally, the guidance, you know, is more confusing than not. They're still holding on to the three feet of social distancing in the classrooms. What we're talking to them about is how do we take the the ridiculousness of some of the guidance, and, and I said some, and make it work in a school setting, right? Because safety, we still, safety is paramount. And the worker safety is connected to the student safety. So, you know, one of the things that's been headlined here in Chicago um, and nationally is that we're asking the district and the mayor to set um, a goal of vaccinating um, students 12 to 18 because they can get the vaccine. And they have been resistant to setting a goal. And so that's a proposal of ours. Set a goal, make it available. Yesterday, our union was in North Lawndale knocking doors, engaging families, making sure that they knew that making sure that they knew that we were hosting a vax, vax uh, uh, event today in North Lawndale. So with Representative Lakeisha Collins, shouts out to Lakeisha, um, we have a, an event over in North Lawndale today. Um, so, but in advance of that event, we went door to door. Um, we talked about the VAX event, but even more so, we talked about like, what do you, you know, wh what was your experience like? Um, school starts in August. Do you have everything that you need to have? Do you know what you need to know? How can I help fill in the blanks? Um, just engaging, you know, and and getting you know some response for that. And what we're finding is that. You know, folks are saying, I don't know enough. Um, I still have questions. Um, you know, it's still a pandemic. You know, they have questions about the vaccine, obviously. So it takes time. It, it takes time. And we ask a lot out of grownups, um, especially parents. And, you know, our policies don't always meet the reality of, schedules, especially with people who are living hand to mouth, right? I, I'm working. I might have one job. I might have two jobs. They're at odd hours. You know, your children take a lot of time. So we're trying to meet people where they are and give them what they need. And that should be doing, we should be doing that with the Chicago public schools. That shouldn't just be a CTU, you know, production. That should be a us production. To that point, the, just the, the choice of words that you use uh, are, is very revealing. So just follow me on this. It would seem to me to be a universal goal of everybody in a position of leadership in the city of Chicago to make sure that everyone who is eligible to be immunized is immunized. So whatever the lay, the age barrier, whatever the age group is, I think it's 12 up, did you say? So everybody. So that should be like something. That should not be a bargaining issue. This is what I'm saying. That's right. It's, it should not be Stacy and Jesse offering a proposal and then Mayor Lori Lightfoot's appointee saying, well, no, but no, that should be a universal accepted goal that the Again, this city is so whacked up that the people who run this city should share with the Chicago Teachers Union. So what? it's like, okay, I understand bargaining over class size. 
I understand borrowing over salary. I understand borrowing over a healthcare pickup. I understand all that. But bargaining over like a universally accepted precept that all people should be immunized, what's the bargain? That that's the, that's the mentality, Stacy, of the board of education that has existed as long as I and I've been around a long time for as long as I can remember. So that doesn't seem like anything has changed. You follow what I just said? I follow exactly what you just said, but. It's the same story, like these these threads of look. It's the same story, man. Like you wake up. What's today? Today is um, Thursday. Every day this week, I've turned on the television to hear the anchor talk to me about a mass shooting in this city. This morning, the data point was two hundred and one children have been shot. Think about that for a minute. 201 children. So that's insane. And our level of tolerance in this city for this level of insanity is getting too high. It's already too high. It's already too high. And the best that our mayor is doing in this moment is offering a million dollar fund for people to snitch on someone with a gun. You know, I guess, I guess that's a response. I'm not sure that is the response, but I guess it's a response. And you literally have groups. I'm going to shout out Good Kids Mad City right now. These are actual youth, actual youth who live in the impacted neighborhoods who should know a thing or two about what's happening in the neighborhoods and their their counterparts. And they're saying that, look, these are the data points. These are the anecdotes. This is our analysis and lived experience. And this is the these are the types of programs and the funding of the programs that we need. And they can't even get a hearing on the peace book. But you can you can put a million dollars behind, you know, telling your neighbor who has a gun. Okay. It's we we continue to drive right past the individuals who are in the neighborhoods who have a better than good idea of how to address what's happening in their neighborhoods. It's very tough to be a member of an impacted neighborhood. Like I live in the sixth ward. There was a mass shooting um, on 75th. I frequent 75th. There's a liquor store there. There's a, a deli there. There's a bakery there. And all three of those places are places that my household frequents more than not. Oh, and and at least I forget about the barbecue, right? So we go there. That's my neighborhood. And the answer cannot simply be we need a drone or we need more policing. I get that part of it. I do. I, I get it. I get the fact that... I know that our neighborhoods have been disinvested in. And the answer is investment. 
And the answer is treating the people who exist in these spaces with some humanity. The answer is actual investment in the people who populate these neighborhoods. That's true. And it's also true that you don't feel safe. So policymakers give us one choice. <laughs> they say either we can invest or we can police in jail. Those are that that's all they're saying to us. When perhaps it's 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 a more complex answer than one or the other. It is a fact that people are in pain. It is a fact that they've closed mental health services uh, or clinics. It is a fact that they have foreclosed on schools and neighborhoods. All of those are facts. It is a fact that investment has been less than zero. That's a fact. It's also a fact that the lack of investment breeds the type of impacts that we're dealing with. But, but just investing doesn't mean that people aren't already harmed by the trauma. So how do you deal with the individual who is violent? Right? And then how do you invest in the individuals that are already violent, who are harmed by the violence? It's more complex than what any politician gets up and talks about in this moment. It's both and typically. You can't just tell me that I want something unconstitutional, like, you know, just pretrial detention, no matter what, because that's what the fifth floor keeps telling us. Just pretrial uh, detention, period. That's going to help. No, man, that ain't it. It's, it, it. It is a lot of things. What we are finding in the data is that some of the safest places have investment and they have police. They have both things. So why do we only get one thing? Why is it always just a call for more policing and penalty? Why can't there be an and? Why can't there just be investment? And let's see how that works out. Try opening up a mental health care clinic. Because I'm going to tell you, if you ride the red line to 87th, like I do, dude, people need mental health care treatment. They do. Do you need to take guns off the street? Illegal guns off the street? Absolutely, you need to take illegal guns off the street. Do I need a, a, um, a grocery store? Absolutely, I need a grocery store, right? Do we not need violence in our neighborhood? Yes. Do we also need programming for youth that looks fun and engaging? Yes. So we have to begin to see the people in the neighborhoods that are, quite frankly, um, the epicenters of like the impact of the violence and treating the people like human beings and coming up with solutions that honors their existence in the neighborhood. Like you can't go and knock on the door of most black people and talk to them about one side of this. You got to go and talk to them about the complexity of this because they're experiencing the complexity of this. You have to, and right now, no one, no one 
maybe with the exception of Kim Fox is talking about like the complexity of this, but the chief law enforcement officer is not the only person who needs to be talking about the complexity of this because she's not over a city budget. She's not over uh, affordable housing. She's not over, you know, the school district. She's over prosecuting criminals, really putting them in jail. Right. That's her job. That's her job. Uh, all right. Uh, this is just a natural segue into a topic that we've had a lot of conversation on in the last couple of weeks on, on the show. Pretty much everybody comes on the show. I ask them their thoughts. Eric Adams. Eric Adams, victorious at Democratic primary in, uh, in New York City. And I know, Stacey, you're a political junkie, so you know what who he is and what he represents. I'll just do a brief res resuscitation for folks who may not know. Although, if you're listening to this show, you know who Eric Adams is. Former police officer, uh, president of the Brooklyn Borough, former state se uh, senator. And he ran as a police officer, as a black man who had been a police officer and had been subjected to harassment and wanted that to end. And yet, as somebody who understood the fears that people have in high crime areas and their wants and desires to be protected. And he won the majority of the black vote. He won over 40 percent, I want to say, of the total vote. I may have it a little, a little off. Uh, it was a ranked vote. He, and, but he will be the Democratic nominee. So when you take a look at uh, Eric Adams' message, the campaign he ran, uh, the results that he had, what kind of takeaways do you come from that, uh, Stacey, that we could apply to Chicago? Um, I think that it, it dovetails into just what into what I just got done talking about, like that there is there's this experience that folks who are living in quote high crime areas are having they are victims of crime <laughs> and there has to be a real response to that victimization and it had, and, and people need to uh, need to feel the immediacy of that. That's one thing. And they should feel the immediacy of their victimization being dealt with because you shouldn't be victimized. Right. And we're only having one conversation. And we've been only having one conversation since forever. What I hear our organizers telling us is that we have to reimagine a world that doesn't dovetail into the imprisonment, the penalty of poverty and the lack of investment. And I hear that too. I mean, look, that's our work. We have to begin to connect the dots on this. Because people want to be both free and safe. Because you will have the same person say yes to both things. You will have this person say yes to both things. And we have to create a pathway for the people who have been victimized by disinvestment and then all of the things that come from disinvestment to be able to see leadership that can both keep them safe, keep their family safe, make their neighborhoods walkable while also investing in the people who live there. We haven't gotten that right yet. Our organizing is falling short on speaking directly to those people, because I'll tell you this, there are not too many doors you will knock in neighborhoods like mine where people 
do not believe in who reject police brutality, but will call the police because there's violence in their neighborhoods. That's a fact. So what are they supposed to do? What is the answer to that? And I think what we have to begin to grapple with, and that's why talking to black people is important, especially like, you know, black people older than me, and I'm what, 44 years old, where they will tell you that both things matter. I don't want the police to beat you up or to kill you, right? They'll also tell you a story when someone in their household, a loved one, or even themselves, where they've had that experience. And then they will dial 911 because of some craziness, some violent craziness that's happening down the block in front or across the street. That is the outcome of disinvestment. That's the outcome of legalized segregation in spaces where black folks, where brown folks, where poor folks, um, where we occupy. Those are the outcomes. These are ultimatums. We're not choosing. We are responding. We are surviving. So we got to, like, we really have to deal with the 360 of people's lives in that way. I think that's important. I also think it's important for us when, um, who are center left and beyond to grapple with the realities that we deal with. Like, look, I'm not fronting. Investment works. We know that. And on the road to investment, there are things that are, there are needs that are not being met, which trigger, you know, the violent episodes that we're seeing. How do you deal with that? We have to be able to have an answer for that. We, we have to. And I think we have answers to it. I do. And I think we have to connect the dots. I think we have to knock on the doors. And I think we have to have the conversations with the people who are living in these places not just talk to ourselves and not just being right because that's important. It's important to get it right. It's not important to be right. Mm. That's the distinction I'm trying to make here. I think part two is that folks on the left, what it appeared to be now I'm not in New York. So I'm just like, I'm getting it from what I'm reading literally. Was there a process for the, quote, left candidate before anyone even declared? We got to get better at having a process before the election. And the organizations and the labor that is like that's doing the hard work in the neighborhoods. We got to get a process and we got to get our person before so we already know who the person is, that person's been vetted, and we are all walking in the same direction, making sure that we're bringing the electorate to our person. That's critical, especially right now, because we, we have done nationally, New York included, Chicago included, some tremendous work of taking care of people during this pandemic, with relating to people during this pandemic. We got to figure out a quicker way of transferring what we understand, who we know, and what we want 
into a campaign that we're not deciding in the middle of the campaign who our person is. Um, we got to start the campaign with our person. Yeah. Well, there, there, you, you, there's two separate issues there. Uh, like I know they come together at some point, but you talked about message, what you stand for. So uh, Eric Adams had a very strong message that people could relate to. Uh, and then you talk about a process where all the different po- uh, players on the left uh, get together, rally behind one person. Uh, and I follow New York politics uh, fairly closely just by re- obsessively reading about it. I don't, don't know anybody in New York uh, who's involved politically, but I follow it obsessively. And I can tell you this, uh, it was a colossal failure on the aspect of process. So many different camps. Labor was split up. The teachers union uh, in New York City endorsed a guy who finished like eighth or something. He did terrible. Uh, SEIU, people say, Eric Adams was endorsed by one uh, wing of SEIU. He's very proud of it. He like So you'd see those distinctive SEIU colors behind Eric Adams. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, AOC comes out for Wiley. So all lefties, like, that's them. They, oh, AOC tweeted out, I'm for Wiley. You know how many lefties in Chicago told me I'm for Wiley? I go, name two things about Wiley. No, name something about Wiley other than she used to work for MSNBC and AOC identifier. And they, they don't know any. <laughs> I'm sorry, lefties. You got to do better than AOC tweets out of support. You know what I'm saying? It's so I hear you. It's and we do such good work everywhere else, right? We do, and I, I we have the capacity to get it right before an election. We have the capacity to you know point our folks in the right direction and actually win people to it. Like no one is knocking a door as much as we are. No one is engaging the electorate on like issues as much as we are. We got to figure out what our secret sauce is and transfer it effectively to the electorate. And we got to be comfortable with the complexity of people's experiences, especially in places where there has been a gross amount of generational disinvestment. Um, Because the, the answer that they'll give you is more complex than sometimes we want to comprehend or grapple with. It's it's really difficult living um, hand to mouth. It is. It's difficult, you know, figuring out how to survive. Folks ain't living, they surviving, right? And so they are, they are reacting. Um, there's not a lot of time to get into the philosophical thises or thats or the historical underpinnings of thises and thats. They are reacting to the stimuli that's doing X and they want a relief from it immediately, mm. right? And so if someone comes around and that's what they're promising, then it makes sense. And it's not that they're low information. They got a lot of damn information, lots of it and lived experience, I might add. We have to prioritize the voters' experience in these places and we got to hear them and then we got to figure out how you scaffold. It, it's not that different from like teaching and meeting your student where they are. They don't come to you as blank slates. They come with a variety of experiences and they come with you and they come to you needing a variety of things. And you have to assess that situation by hearing and experiencing that student and setting up a program that encompasses 30 or more of them that meets their needs. It's messy. It's imperfect. 
and it, and you got to make sharp pivots and it's fluid. And that's what we're dealing with here. You know, the absolutes, the, the only absolute is that we should be requiring equity and justice. Now, how we do that has to be informed by the ground, meaning the environment and the, and the people who actually need the equity and justice the most. That's the only absolute in this game. Well, I'll be watching New York, Eric Adams, be watching very closely on that equity issue. You were supported by a lot of businessmen in New York City. So uh, I know New York well, has... Well, you saw Ken Griffin. Our buddy yeah, Ken Kenny Griffin G. was up there dropping money. Yeah, he dropped money. Now, you don't... You, I'm going to... In fairness to Eric Adams, Kenny G may have just been saying, hmm, I think this, this guy is going to win, so I'm going to get him a good and give him some money now. Does not necessarily mean I'm putting the best spin on it I can possibly concoct. Stacy, that Eric views the world, Eric Adams views the world the way Kenny G views the world. We shall see. And that's what I'm saying. Like they have an equivalent of a TIF program in New York City. They have economic development monies. And I'll be watching to see how he distributes that money, to see if he distributes that money the typical Chicago way, where you go to the wealthiest neighborhoods and you distribute it in the hope that you fortify those neighborhoods and the hell with the poor neighborhoods. Or will he have more of an equitable way of distributing it so you know we'll see um ben, before you leave that though but think about it new yorkers took a leap of faith with de blasio you know x amount of years ago right think think about his campaign and he was the lefty and you know he was going to and, and that has been less than perfect far less than perfect right and so you know the situation there is like there's accountability for what you told me you were going to do and what I received. I haven't read any analysis on voters and how they use the experience with him to inform this experience. Well, um, yeah. And I also think, too, one other thing that has been less, you know, um, honored, like Buddy was already like an elected official. He already had name recognition. He was already a part of a space where, you know, a regular voter would know who he is. He wasn't an unknown quantity. Those types of things also go a long way, too, regardless of ideology, regardless of, you know, any of the other stuff we would like to matter first. Absolutely. He was a strong character and he had a past. All right. All right. Now let's go back to Chicago and uh, throw you in the middle of this one, uh, which we I've been talking <laughs> a lot about this one. So I was very critical of Mayor Lori Lightfoot for the way she treated uh, all women, Jeanette Taylor, and I make no bones about it. I wrote about it. I talked about it. Uh, I ha I'm a big fan of Jeanette Taylor, as everybody knows. And I thought it was, even if I wasn't a fan of Jeanette Taylor, I thought it was very disrespectful uh, the way Lori Lightfoot treated her. And I don't think that was uh, what I would like to see for my mayor. Uh, after I articulated my worldview, I was hit by criticism on two fronts. One uh, from Lori Lightfoot supporters saying, Ben, how come you didn't criticize white she mayors? She supporters? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> uh, Stop it, Stacey Davis Gates. But yes, her friends and uh, Ben, uh, her friends and allies said, Ben, you, you, how come we only criticize uh, the mayor for being rude and disrespectful when it's a black woman? I said, I always was ripping Rom on that point. Uh, that was the re first response. And then the second response was is interesting, totally contradicted. The first response is, Ben, you don't understand. You're naive. 
you're the mayor of the city of Chicago, you have to be tough. You have to be rude. You have to be disrespectful. You have to get in people's face. You got to let the Jeanette Taylors of the world know where they stand. You're the boss. She works for you. That's how it's done, Ben, in the city of Chicago. You never ran a big, you never ran anything, let alone a city like Chicago. She's not either. <laughs> She's not either. The city uh, is, is upside down. Sorry. Let me let you finish. All right, I, I am finished. So what's your response? Do you think, uh, do you agree with my position that it's uh, disrespectful? She owes Jeanette Taylor an apology? Or do you believe that to be the mayor of the city of Chicago, you have to be rude and disrespectful and people just have to put up with it? Go ahead. Look, I don't think anyone has to be rude and disrespectful to do anything. And being a high school teacher will teach you that quicker than anything, right? Um, if there's one thing that young people know better than anyone, it's fairness. They will sniff out unfairness and injustice before you can bat your eye. They, they are like very sensitive to unfairness, very sensitive to injustice and their perception of it. Um, and they will hold you to account <laughs> as an adult in the in, in their environment too. So you don't have to be rude and disrespectful. You don't. That's not a requirement for anything. And if people believe that, then I'm sad for those people, to be honest with you. Now, do I believe that people should treat you? in that way and you just absorb it and smile, that ain't my way. But I don't intentionally come into situations to be provocative and rude either. Now, will you get back what you give to me? It depends, right? If it's worth it. And my dad would tell me 10 times out of 10 is not worth it. Now, in terms of what happened, like the anatomy of what happened, I would say that it was disappointing. And it was consistent with the behavior that we've seen since day one, regardless of who it is, right? It's just been consistent behavior. It doesn't matter male. It doesn't matter female. It doesn't matter race. It just doesn't matter. We've seen the emails. We've read the stories. People have had accounts. That is consistent. That's not like a one-time deal. Um, and what I've learned as a leader is that the issues should get your venom, not the people who you need to combat the issues. She needs Jeanette. She needs all 50 of those aldermen to make sure that Chicago is in a position where all of us, where all of our needs are met and we're safe. You don't get there by fighting with folks. Can you have a disagreement? You better. That's a part of this democracy. But do you have to be intentionally like disagreeable and provocative? No, you don't. Like, yo, you and I can disagree on stuff. And I'm going to still call you and I'm going to even ask you, why do you think that way? And what am I missing? Like the curiosity is missing from this, to be perfectly honest. And guess what? Another thing about leadership, you can't take this stuff personally. You feel it personally. You, I, I, I always feel it personally. And you cannot respond personally. The mayor is not the city of Chicago. Just ain't. The city is, is full of people. And everything ain't about you. It just isn't. But to get down from your throne, 
like, look, you know what that looks like <laughs> in that chamber. You're elevated, right? The 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 construction of the room tells everyone who the mayor is. You ain't got to say a word. You got a gavel. You have an elevated space, and you're the mayor. You ain't got to tell nobody you a mayor. That's like Muhammad. That that that's just that's just like. Does LeBron James have to walk into a room and tell anybody who he is? You just know it. You know, speaking of LeBron James, he, I I won't name the person, but uh, there is uh, a mixed martial arts uh, fighter who uh, is just always, always going after LeBron, uh, trolling him on uh, Twitter, trying to rile. And LeBron will not respond. I got my issues with LeBron. We're not going to have a LeBron discussion. I got my issues with LeBron. 2010, he should have come to Chicago, not Miami. I have a lot of issues with LeBron James. But I love... Personal issues. (laughs) (laughs) Made the wrong decision, LeBron. Okay? He should have come to Chicago, played with Derrick Rose. All right? That's a whole other point. Uh, And uh, Joe Kim Noah and Louis Dang. Okay? We would have had a championship. We'd be... Two or three, all right? But those are different issues. My issue, I love how he does not fall for it. He just ignores. This guy keeps trolling. He's a Trump supporter. Keeps trolling him, trolling him, saying, you're a wimp. I could knock you out. You know what I'm saying? And LeBron just ignores him. So I hear what you're saying on that uh, on that LeBron uh, front. And but- LeBron is not always not wanting to respond. Dig this. Ask LeBron how many times he's written a response and deleted it. How many times has he written a response and his wife is like, dude, you better not post that. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) so he has people around him saying, dude, don't get up. Don't make that man famous. Don't give him your energy. Yeah. Like he doesn't matter. He's trying to get famous off of you. You're LeBron James. Yeah. Right. Sometimes you have to have people to remind you of your position and, the other person's position. So look, it was disrespectful. People get to people get to disagree with you. They they do. And they get to voice their disagreement. And you get to absorb that disagreement. And a lot of what's going on is because people aren't talking to people. And look, I'ma just be straight up with it. I don't think I have to say this, but I ride with Jeanette Taylor. Anytime you starve yourself to keep a neighborhood school open, you all right with me. I don't care what else you do in life. <laughs> that right there cements who you are for me. Yeah, I'm a genetic. Period, point blank, end of the story. <laughs> like she sacrificed her yeah. personal health for um, a public good, for her community, for her people, for her neighborhood, like that for children in the city. That's enough for me. So, look, you know, yes, she needs to apologize to Jeanette. Yes, she's going to need Jeanette to run this city. Yes, you want someone on your team like Jeanette Taylor. Yes, Jeanette Taylor is the truth. She's principled. She leads with her heart. Like she leads with values and principles that respects the humanity of people. Look, the only thing that we have in this city worth saving are the people in this city. And when we put skyscrapers over the people in the city, we will always lose. And right now we're seeing the impact of that. We're seeing the impact of that. And um, we're just going to have to really and truly come correct on seeing people in their humanity. 
We have to take care of people. People need jobs that pay a good wage. People need a school that they can walk their children to. People need. And when people don't get the investment, the humanity and the care, you get what we're experiencing right now. Mass shootings, multiple mass shootings in a day. That's insanity. And you don't get out of this quagmire with fighting the people you need in order to make it better. You just don't. All right. Uh, we'll close with this. You mentioned something that triggered this, and I wrote it down as soon as you said it. And you said, well, we, meaning uh, Stacy and Ben, don't always agree. And I'll tell you one thing we disagreed on in the 29th. I'm not particularly proud of this one, by the way. Uh, in the 29th. So I don't even know why you're saying it out loud. <laughs> you, you could open this up with something else. <laughs> in the 2019 mayoral election, I voted for Lori Lightfoot. I know you didn't. Okay. Uh, I can't say for certain who you voted for, but I know it wasn't Lori Lightfoot. It wasn't him. Okay. Uh, I got a feeling uh, the person you voted for has the initials TP. So uh, I'm very, speaking of disappointment, and I'm very disappointed with, way with uh, the way President Preckwinkle, Cook County Board, de dealt with SEIU 73 and Diane Palmer's coming on this show. It's a very labor-friendly show ladies and gentlemen. So I'm going to give Diane Palmer an opportunity to tell what happened from her perspective. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that. I've had several conversations with her. Very disappointed with the way Tony Preckwinkle uh, treated that union. Stacy. this is me speaking, not Stacy. Tony Preckwinkle, you were supported wholeheartedly by lefties in this city, by working families party in this city, by the Chicago Teachers Union in this city. They stuck their neck out for you. I thought they stuck it too far. And I, I, Stacy knows. I go, you're sticking your neck out too far for Stacy. And then this is what she does. I'm very disappointed with Tony Preckwinkle in this. What's your thoughts about all that, Stacey? That it is difficult for leadership in this city, the culture of the city, to see the transformation of labor. So, you know, I think that this, this is a little, this is actually a, a little deeper than just Tony or President Preckwinkle. This also deals with the fact that Local 73 have been without bold, audacious leadership for a number of years, right? And so you get Diane Palmer coming in and assessing the situation that her people aren't being taken care of across the board. And Diane says that we're going to not only hear our members, organize with our members, but we're going to strike bosses that don't want to respect the dignity and the humanity of the people who do the work in those places. This ain't the first strike Diane has taken. Diane came in and I think, what is this? Like three or four strikes? Just let that sink in for a moment. Three, right? She struck the mayor of Chicago um, in 19, CTU and SEIU 73. Um, UIC in the middle of a pandemic, right? And, and then Cook County, the longest strike that this city has seen since, what, 87? Think about that for a while. And then think about what it took for those workers to be on strike. It means for years that the boss and the labor union had neglected the worker. That's what that means. 
And it also means that the boss, in this case, President Preckwinkle, she didn't have the muscle to understand what transformation sounds like and what it looks like. It becomes something that they can't even hear. That's what Karen had to do, the Chicago Teachers Union in 2012. No one understood that. You were there. You 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 wrote about it. You you know Karen. No one understood what that was about. Yes, it was about a contract, but even more so, it was about resetting the relationships internally within the union. And then it was about resetting the relationship that you have with the stakeholders in public education. It was about resetting the terms of the the relationship between the boss and the worker. And that is what we are seeing happen with STIU 73 with their contracts. And that is not only difficult to do, it is necessary to do, especially in the world that we're living in right now, where it is necessary for workers to have a voice, to be protected, and to have the ability to be a real stakeholder in, the, in their workspace and in their living space. Like, I, I am a supporter. I am a fan of the type of leadership that Diane is pushing out, but also even more so the courage of the workers there. Listen, the worst part of this for me was the whole conversation around which worker. Listen, these ain't high earning individuals. They're not. And what they were asking for was for their the basement of their like their 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 pay rates to be raised because it didn't keep up right and for the county for president preckwinkle for her people not to hear that that is deeply problematic cuz those are the same people who are living in the neighborhoods that are under siege right now those are the same people if they don't go to work people don't have a service Right. When I say invest in people, it's not just a call out to the mayor of Chicago. It's a call out to every boss in Chicago. It's a call out to every public entity in Chicago and Cook County. That this doesn't have anything to do with your leadership. This has everything to do with the people who need to be a priority in this place. The disinvestment has been so thorough regular and acceptable. They had to be on strike for what, 15 days? 15 days? Like it took you 15 days to get this? Do you understand how far down in a deficit we are in this, 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 this socio-political economic space? Where you got to be on strike for 15 days for a janitor to get a raise. You you want a dirty hospital? Get that person what they need. And you move on. Well, it's too much money. How is it too much money to get a janitor? Who not only lives in Cook County, but works in Cook County. Come on, man. The environment needs to be reset. And Diane led that resetting. The workers were courageous enough to be a part of that resetting because they are experiencing the deep inequities. Again, we got to do more than survive in this city. People deserve to live. They deserve 
to enjoy. They deserve to be safe and comfortable. And that's the whole 360. It's not just about the violence. It is also about the wage. It is also about their dignity. It's it's about their safety. And safety is, is, is across the board. And they're all connected anyway. Uh, like the wage, the violence, everything. Uh, so, uh, yep. Uh, all right, Stacey Davis Gates, we'll close with one a, a prediction. We'll just radically different. Okay. Uh, so, right now, um, I'm utterly obsessed with the NBA Finals. This show will drop Saturday. Uh, so, it's 2 2 Bucks and Phoenix. So, it's the best two out of three right now. Stacey Davis Gates, huge basketball fan. And I urge everybody to check out the, the interview we did, which is totally about basketball, not even politics at all. Basketball in the 90s. Uh, and Michael Jeffrey Jordan uh, in the last dance. So it's 2-2. The, the home court advantage is to the Phoenix Suns. And uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, at best, have one home game. That's it. They have to win, to win the championship. They have to win at least one game on Phoenix court. Who do you predict will be this year's NBA Finals champion, the Bucks or the Suns? Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Like, I mean, they're doing it right now. Look, Milwaukee got to win something to make, you know, it interesting. <laughs> I mean, you got to win something. And, and, you know, and I got to be honest. Like, look, I, I, you know, I said Phoenix and four. I did. <laughs> when it started, I said Phoenix and four. Oh, so, you know, in full, full disclosure, I, I already got it wrong. So, you know, no one make a bet off of my prediction. Um, but what I will say, is, it's good to see Chris Paul leading. Um, in the way that he's leading this team. And it's good to see the emergence of Devin Booker as a superstar, to be honest with you. Um, and like Milwaukee, like watching Milwaukee in the Eastern Conference Finals, that was something to see. It really was. It, it You know, that was one of the most competitive like Eastern Conference Finals we've seen. Like just overall, I thought it, um, it was it was both entertaining um, but it was also you, you just see the emergence of, um, you know, smaller market teams yeah. um, making their way to the center stage of the NBA. Now, I'm not sure that that's a good business model. And, you know, for competitors and sports fans, it is kind of cool, though. You know, it is kind of cool. So um, I'm still going to be Phoenix. It, it obviously won't be in four, <laughs> but you know, my money's on Phoenix. All right. Well, I, uh, I can't stand either team. I'm a diehard Bulls fan, but I have to admit, uh, I've been rooting for Milwaukee, uh, cause my son-in-law is from Milwaukee. So I'm doing it for Brian, but I have fallen in love with Giannis. And I think the reason you said sweep was because at the time, Giannis, it wasn't clear if he was even going to play and it would have been a sweep in my humble opinion, had Giannis, uh, not been able to play. So I think you would have been vindicated, uh, Stacey, had he not played. That said, I'm sticking with the Bucks. But Giannis is getting some help. He's getting a lot of help. You know, that's a team. That's not a Giannis show. No. That, did, you watch last night's, you did, know? You watch, did you watch last night's game? You I, 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 I watched the fourth quarter. I didn't watch all of it. But, I, I you know, I watched the fourth quarter. And... Um, they got a team, Ben. That that's a team. It it's good to see a, a a team. Like, look, you know, we talk about the Bulls and the heyday of the Bulls, and it was just absolutely awesome. But like, I was like, my introduction to like 
NBA basketball was like the LA Lakers and the Boston Celtics, right? When I was a like, it was the eighties. And my takeaway from Boston and the Lakers was that you had complete teams. You just didn't have a team stacked with superstars. You had like complete teams that were just solid. And that's what I see in Milwaukee. I see a solid team. Sure, you got a superstar there, but you also got a solid team. And you can depend on anybody at any point on that squad, right? Because they wouldn't even be 2-2 if you didn't have a solid team. Because to your point earlier, we didn't even know if the superstar was going to be available. Yeah. Uh, that said, it is a solid team. You can depend on it anyway, but Milwaukee, uh, Coach, if you're listening, get the ball to Middleton. Good things happen when Chris Middleton has the ball in the fourth quarter. That's all I'm going to say. Dude, well, you get zero disagreement from me. That's my point. Like, you got a Magic Johnson and a Kareem. You have a Magic Johnson and a James Worthy. Like, you got to have it. You got a Dennis Johnson. You got a a, a Parrish. You got a Dennis Johnson. You got a Larry Bird. Like, you got to have a team. Yeah, absolutely. Michael Jeffrey Jordan couldn't have done without Scottie Pippen. Uh, don't forget that. Not at and all. Steve Kerr and uh, Bill Cartwright and uh, yeah. uh, Horace Grant, etc. All right, Stacey, uh, it's a blast talking to you as always. And uh, stay safe and sound. Get you back on real soon. All right, Stacey? Hey, I appreciate you, man. And as a sponsor of this show, I am so glad to be in the carpet. <laughs> About time is what I say. Hey, say it twice because it is about time. No, for real. Like on the one, whether or not like you are, you know, you give us a, a decent place, journalism, voices like yours need to be supported. And if the hedge funds can come through and try to destroy it, then we certainly have a responsibility to try and keep it strong and give it a platform. And that's a shout out to everyone. That's not just CTU. But everyone, you know, who can support, we have to support because, you know, I, I know what privatization looks like. I know what hedge fund um, like leadership looks like in, in, in public schools. We don't want that for our journalism. We just don't. We, we cannot have it. Democracy dies if, if that happens. Well put. We'll leave it there. Stacey Davis Gates, thank you very much. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 